Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And also in studio with us, we have frequent contributor Brian Hugh of New Bloom Magazine. Brian, good to have you here. Thanks for having me. So frequent, in fact, that I think one of your friends once quipped that ICRT <laughs> should just put you on the payroll. But we can't do that because you insist on being paid in cold, hard cash. So. That's right. <laughs> we gave him a badge, though. We did. Yeah, like a little badge. Yeah. Badge of honor. Badge of honor. Also, another man that uh, deserves a badge of honor is Taipei-based freelance journalist slash contract reporter, Ralph Jennings. Ralph, glad to have you back on the program as well. Thanks for having me back. On the show today, uh, keeping things simple, the whole first half of the show, we're going to be focusing on recent cross-strait tensions, then a lot happening in that general genre. And we'll cap that discussion off with another discussion on how the folks in the international media have been covering all this cross-strait drama. Then in the second half, Brian and I were at the May Day labor demonstration in Taipei. We'll hear from Brian what Taiwan's working stiffs want and whether or not they're likely to get it. Foxconn may be preparing to make a big investment into the U.S., could a Taiwanese company give a boost to U.S. manufacturing? We will discuss and round out the show. The recent suicide of a young female author has sparked an online furor and calls to do more to prevent instances of sexual abuse. There is a lot to unpack there. We'll have the head of the Modern Women's Foundation to give her perspective on all of this. But first, let's get into that cross-strait drama. Cross-strait relations have been largely frozen since President Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration a year ago. But the South China Morning Post released an article over the weekend arguing that China is preparing to take a new approach to Taiwan issues. This approach, they say, would focus on winning over young people and small businesses with economic opportunity. If the reporting is correct, uh, China will progress its cross-strait agenda by extending the Chinese dream to Taiwan's struggling professional class. So, potentially big changes in the works there. Meanwhile, President Tsai is widely expected to lay out a new framework for her approach to cross-strait relations on the one-year anniversary of her inauguration later this month. So, maybe big changes in the works on the Taiwan side, too. Maybe, maybe. But before we get into the big questions of where this is all headed, let's check in with where things are right now. We're going to do a little bit of a lightning round to update you on three cross-strait spats that highlight just how thorny this relationship has become. Uh, first up, let's start with the one that we haven't covered yet on the show. An international conference on conflict diamonds in Australia got a little bit raucous this week, Gavin. Yes, this was the Kimberley Process Intercessional Meeting, which took place in Perth, Australia. It was an official Australian government meeting, and I believe that also there was Australia's Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop. So it was a pretty heavy-hitting um, event. It's aimed at discussing and getting rid of conflict or blood diamonds from the sale in open markets, basically. It's a reasonably good cause, I guess. You know, anyway, a, a delegation from Taiwan, from the rough diamond trading entity of Chinese Taipei, was invited to the event in Perth. That's the name that they were invited under. Uh, under, yes. Uh, much to the irie of the Chinese. <laughs> Go figure there, eh? Anyway, as the meeting was getting underway, Chinese officials hijacked the microphone and interrupted the meeting as a senior Australian government official was introducing the opening ceremony, as well as Australia's foreign minister, who was there to oversee it. 
Um, well, they hijacked the microphone and demanded to know why Taiwan was there. Um, this went down like a lead balloon, basically, among the delegates that were also in Perth, with one high-level Australian attendee being quoted by the Sydney Morning Herald as saying that the Chinese diplomat's behaviour was disgusting, uncalled for, inappropriate and disrespectful, while an Australian diamond executive, who was also at the meeting, has been cited as saying by the Sydney Morning Herald that the Chinese actions were a shocking act of disrespect. What is the issue here was China was complaining that Taiwan shouldn't have been at the meeting. Ha ha, they got it wrong though, didn't they? Because Taiwan was actually granted observer status at the Kimberley process meeting in 2007. But this didn't stop Beijing from running its mouth off with the foreign ministry there defending its delegates' actions, describing their interrupting the procedures as being reasonable. Well, it also didn't stop the organizers of the no, event they from eventually, eventually kicking Taiwan out kick as well. It, ask, I think they probably asked them to leave. I don't think they got the bouncers in and say, we're escorting you to the door. I think it was more a case, can you leave and we'll talk to you later. Right, but it's still the case that it, uh, it does seem like a number of delegates at the meeting as well as the organizers <laughs> themselves took the side of the Chinese Appar- it, Apparently it was the Chinese that kicked it off and apparently some African allies that were at the meeting. Blood Diamonds Africa, go figure. Yeah, they put two and two together there. Apparently they also um, interrupted other parts of the meeting voicing their support for China. Mm-hmm. No doubt that's got something to do with the fact that China owns most of those countries. We could. Put, I wouldn't say. I'm just alleging. You know, uh, te- I didn't. I don't know if it's true or not. People, people could make such an accusation. They people could do. Could make such an accusation. You could do in capital letters. <laughs> Hypothetically, yes. uh, Ralph. So this is just the latest example of uh, international diplomatic spat between. Uh, Taiwan and China. Interesting, though, that in this case, it it does seem like a lot of the delegates to that meeting are uh, really incensed with uh, China's behavior here. I saw that and I thought back to a case where I believe Taiwan's entrant to the Miss World beauty pageant um, decided not to wear, not to say she was from Chinese Taipei or something like that a couple years ago. And these things come up periodically and you never know how the other side, the host, and China will react. Um, this time, I believe some of the African leaders there also had some strong views that were supportive of China, and I wasn't too surprised uh, because the Chinese get really emotional. If you get a certain type of person in an overseas environment, they've heard this stuff growing up uh, through their media, through their textbooks, and when Taiwan suddenly appears at some event that China thinks it's supposed to be, if not dominated, at least be a major player, then these people stoked by all the stuff they've been taught throughout their lives, they get really emotional about it. I think what was different about this one, though, it happened in Australia, which, of course, these things happened in the past in Thailand, the Philippines, and countries like this, Yeah, but this happened in Australia. And of course, that's a bit of a different story there. And in fact, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says it in fact raised the issue with the Chinese ambassador to Australia. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, slightly high, it got pushed up to a slightly higher level than I think it would have been had it happened in Manila, Bangkok, Phnom Penh, mm-hmm. Hanoi, etc. Yeah. yeah, Brian, what about you? Uh, did anything about this surprise you? 
<clears throat> I mean, not particularly, but uh, in these kind of incidents, it doesn't always look good for China or Australia. I mean, you know, when this kind of thing happens, when China kind of goes crazy at some international conference, and depending on the host, you know, how the host responds to it, sometimes they both look bad. I think this was the case here. I mean, I think if the Thai administration is smart, it will actually leverage on that. Because, you know, there, there are multiple such incidents. For example, I think uh, the, one, the incident that came to mind to me was an incident in Braga, Spain in 2014, which was a China Studies conference, in which the Chinese delegation demanded the removal from conference materials of anything related to the Changqing Kuo Foundation, which had partially sponsored the conference. Um, so, I mean, in these kind of cases, you know, China just sometimes doesn't help itself. Um, I mean... Sometimes the fact that the, these incidents break out, particularly in something as you know unambiguous as this, you know, it's about blood diamonds, and Taiwan is only trying to help, but you know, trying to react this way, it doesn't it doesn't look good for China on the international stage. Mm. All right, so uh, we're going to leave that story on that point, moving through these quickly, and move on to the two stories that we have covered before. Here uh, in this next one, we're going to be talking about another international conference that's been a little bit of a sticky wicket in cross-strait relations. We're talking here about that invitation to the World Health Assembly Conference, which still hasn't arrived. Still wide suspicion as well that pressure from China may be preventing its delivery. But Minister of Health and Welfare Chen Shijong is now saying Taiwan is going to send a delegation anyway, regardless of whether or not that invitation ever shows up, Gavin. Not optimistic. That's not. what the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said yesterday. We well, the not, due date would be Monday. Well, we are not optimistic that we'll receive the invitation by the invitation due date. Mm-hmm. So they're being sort of upfront and straightforward about that one. And as you said, yes, the health minister is planning to jaunt off with a delegation to Geneva. And why not? It's the beginning of summer. It's Switzerland. It's a nice place to hang out. Fondue, and, I think, uh, is what we recommended. Fondue. They... We did that before last mm-hmm. week. A beer. Swiss beers. Chocolates. Why, why not? Very go, healthy for uh, Why not conference. go to Geneva? <laughs> yes, why not go to Geneva? Anyway, the health minister is going to pop off to Geneva, regardless of an invitation or not, where he hopes to meet with delegates who have been invited to the World Health Assembly on the sidelines of the event. He also mentioned something earlier this week about holding a, and he called it an international news conference in Geneva, in a sign of protest over Taiwan's not being invited to attend the assembly as an observer, as it has been since 2009. However, when pressed by lawmakers about what he quite meant by a news conference and any other things that they could be doing there, apart from eating chocolate, fondue, drinking beer and looking at Lake Geneva, he didn't give any other details at all. All right. So this is a bit of news that we've been covering for some time now. Now it's looking more and more certain that uh, an invitation will not be forthcoming. Not optimistic. Not optimistic is the phrase that we're going to be using today. Because apparently deadline for registration is next Monday, I believe. Exactly. That's when you've got to go on your computer and say, I'm attending. Tick the box. Bing! Exactly. But, uh, Brian, uh, where where do you think this is all headed? Do you think that this strategy of sending a delegation, whether or not they're invited, uh, will do anything for Taiwan? I mean, you know, the funny thing is to connect this to the previous story. On the flip side, if Taiwan comes off as, you know, being rude and gate-crashing and, you know, just intruding on this, on this conference, that might not work well. But on the flip side, if, you know, this is a way to... If if done well, this can point attention to the fact that Taiwan excluded from the World Health Assembly, and that affects Taiwan citizens, as seen in past instances, as, you know, the SARS crisis and, you know, the delays in medical treatment or supplies arriving in Taiwan as a result. Um, I mean, the thing is, I think this also has a domestic concern for the Thai administration. I mean... 
every time this comes up, every you know, whenever this happens, it causes controversy. Even when you know Taiwan attends under usually Chinese Taipei or some name like that. So mm. either way, you know, there would be some controversy either about Taiwan being excluded from the conference or how it participates in the conference. And you know, I think maybe the time station is also hoping to lay critics by just taking a more heads-on approach this time as compared to last year. Mm. Lose lose is what the Thai administration is looking at there. My question is, if they're not invited, who pays for the airplane tickets? Hmm, not me. You're a taxpayer. Oh yeah, I guess then yes, me. So you should write a letter. <laughs> say, can you bring me? I've got a list of things I want from Geneva when you come back. Yeah, bring bring back some of that fondue. Yeah, please. yeah, chocolate and things. Yeah. Uh, Ralph, what do you make of all this? I I think the international news conference there, if they do that, will go off fairly well. As uh, Brian mentioned, there's a domestic component. People in Taiwan are waiting for uh, signs of a strong foreign policy, and this is uh, an area that the Taiwanese public has um, focused quite a bit since 2009. They're proud to have been able to go. Um, so, if the conference, if the uh, representatives at the news conference stand up and say we should have been invited and we didn't, and China's putting pressure on us. And if they're outside, they're not actually physically gate crashing. If they're outside the venue, I think it should go over pretty well, and it will be in the ramp up to uh, Tsai Ing-wen's first year anniversary speech. As you mentioned, that may signal some new direction on China policy. So perhaps it all goes together and will make a, a strong impression. Yeah, but actually, talking of Tsai Ing-wen, the president here, she shared a video of a photo exhibition on Taiwan's contributions to health for all on her Twitter account this week, and she basically went on there and she wrote that Taiwan provides medical assistance to millions of patients around the world, and this is Taiwan's story. This is a tweet to promote Taiwan's attendance at the WHO, and it ends with, "Who cares? Taiwan cares," as in the World Health Organization. WHO cares. Who cares? Twitter and puns and politics—everything that you could ever ask for, right there, all in one tweet. Uh, so we're gonna wrap up that discussion right there. There's a lot more that we could say about it, and uh, maybe we will further down the conversation. But let's get to our last little spat that we want to cover in this cross-rate lightning round uh, before we circle back and all that. Taiwanese rights activist Li Mingjia remains detained in China. We don't know where. Still, don't have a super good sense of why. I've gotten some statements from China, but not a ton of clarity. Taiwan's government has so far been unable to move the case forward, but it looks like Li's wife, Li Qingyu, may soon take matters into her own hands. At least uh, based on a recent BBC interview that was released. Recently, well, she's been interviewed by several people in the international media over the past like eight days. She, like you said, Keith, this the first one came in the B, in the BBC Chinese Language Bureau, where Li Jingyu basically said she was taking her appeals to the international community, as she said that they were aimed at maximising exposure of her husband's case through the involvement of both international media and academics. Um, she said she was forced to go to the international media because obviously there's Taiwan. China is ignoring calls from Taiwan about Li's whereabouts and why he's been arrested. But she also said that if she accepted the conditions, which were set out in a letter that she received shortly after her husband was detained from authorities in China, she said that Beijing will be able to accuse her husband of any number of false charges. So she went on to say that she is adamant that following the international path is the only way to secure her husband's release. Hmm. He's of course been somewhere in China since March the nineteenth. So, Ralph, what do you make of this attempt to kind of? 
take the international route to court international public opinion, do you think that that's really going to matter on this particular issue? Uh, Li Mingzhu's wife is doing what a lot of family members of dissidents and disappeared people in China have done in the past, and to some extent the strategy works. And you would describe that as being, as you said, getting international attention. If the uh, eight media interviews go somewhere, then in theory uh, human rights organizations see those reports, politicians see those reports, uh, somebody perhaps from Europe who visits China might raise it with during their visit, so it gets some traction, it gets some attention. What may eventually happen if the issue goes up to the diplomatic level somehow is that Lee will be released or at least disclosed, um, you know, his whereabouts will be disclosed in exchange for something else that um, the, the other side of the, of, the, of the equation gives to China in return. Brian, what do you see here? I think uh, probably Li Qingyu is somewhat dissatisfied with the reaction of the Tsai administration to all this, because, you know, the Tsai administration has been mostly quiet. It's mostly taken a very low-key approach. Um, so, you know, you don't have any grand declarations from Tsai Ing-wen or, you know, Ling Chen. Um, as a result, I think, you know, Li Qingyu probably wants to circumvent the government, the Taiwanese government, to some extent, by directly appealing to the international community. Um, in the past, you know, groups calling for Li's release do realize that America is the major force that could, with you know, interna- with pressure on China, could possibly secure Li's release. And so sometimes, you know, when these appeals are directed to the international community, a lot of times it's actually America, which people are thinking about. But you know, either way, I think this is an attempt to get around what is perceived as in- the inaction of the Tsai administration. Mm. All right, so. Those are just three stories that have been unfolding recently, the latest on all three of those. Let's uh, move away from those specific news bits and return now to that question of what direction will cross-strait relations take and how might both sides alter their approach in the next couple of months. Uh, So moving on back to that South China Morning Post article titled, By the Way, Beijing Planning New Approach to Taiwan Affairs, and written, by the way, by Lawrence Zhong and Choi Chi Yuk. Uh, apologies, I probably uh, butchered both of those, but anyway, uh, those authors cite Chinese officials who believe Beijing is preparing for a big shift in cross-strait policy. Uh, this shift would move away from engagement with either of Taiwan's major political parties, both the KMT and the DPP, and would instead seek to boost relations through the work of low-profile political organizations with the broad goal of winning the hearts and minds of Taiwan's young people by opening the door to economic opportunity in China. Oh, bribery! Hey, economic opportunity, bribery, we're not going to put a fine point on that one. Ralph, we kind of just went through a long list of difficulties in the cross-strait relationship. So in that broad context, uh, what do you make of the argument that the South China Morning Post article is making here? Do you see room for that kind of realignment? I see Jack Ma of Alibaba having already done this. And the story came up, I don't know how many years ago now. It all seems like kind of a blur, but it wasn't that long ago that Alibaba made an offer to via the Maingjo or during the Maingjo era to the the uh, as you say the young entrepreneurs here to um, I think get some scholarship money and I'm, I'm talking out of turn here but there was some kind of an offer that if they were to you know, they could work with 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 his organizations his companies and get some kind of access to China so 
if this is the new, the new policy, you could say it's already being done, it's already been done. China certainly has the entrepreneurs who can do this. Uh, Taiwan's government, Taiwan's business community is pretty keen now to develop a software or, you know, a tech industry that's less reliant on making other people's PCs, basically. So this may be an attraction. China has Tencent, they have Alibaba, they have Baidu, they have a lot of enviable companies that some of the the uh, techies here may be able to tap into. Um, it probably wouldn't be an official change of policy. It would just be something they do, and the two governments would, would do whatever they do separately. Mm, right, so maybe a policy that would be somewhat constrained and not have major implications for the higher-level uh, political relations, government-to-government. Uh, government. Brian, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of examples of Taiwan's young people really struggling with stagnant wages and lack of opportunities for fulfilling interesting work here in Taiwan. Do you think that this approach from China might have any purchase? Um, I mean, I think it's not really a new approach because, you know, there have been programs to, you know, provide young entrepreneurs or, you know, people in the tech fields with greater resources than China. Um, you know, programs that are sponsored by the government in which the, the, the government hopes, you know, I think to create a, a, a younger generation of Taishang who, by virtue of the fact that their businesses have so much to do with China, will be much more pro-China. Um, the real question for me is that whether they can actually use this to leverage on the young people in Taiwan because, you know, like, this isn't exactly a new approach. Um, I think that, you know, to date, sometimes it has kind of rubbed people the wrong way, and I'm not sure that China will actually be able to, you know, rebrand this because this this is this is approach I think that China's taken for a while. And the other flip side, though, I also just wonder if uh, China might just undercut itself because I think, despite this this uh, you know the statement from the South China Morning Post, which I think increasingly expresses uh, Chinese propaganda, um, <laughs> they you know China sometimes their the actions of the of the the main government actually just you know kind of weirdly undercut their own programs. Like, you know, for example, Hong Kong is something that China is losing. And, you know, it's lost the young people of Hong Kong. But the candidate put out was an extreme hardliner candidate, Carrie Lam, who had almost no appeal to young people. And then you saw, you know, things from the South China Morning Post, evocative of how other pro-Beijing media in Hong Kong were behaving, just trying to paint, paint Carrie Lam as, like, the candidate of the people, of the young people, of reform and change. And on the other hand, you know, she's a person that you know, literally when she left her official position in government to run for chief executive of Hong Kong, she did not know where to buy toilet paper. And, you know, she actually wrote this on social media that, you know, after I left my official residence, I didn't know where to buy toilet paper. So that, that sometimes, you know, Beijing puts its, its bets on the wrong horse, but also just, you know, sometimes state-run media kind of goes a little, or state-influenced media just goes kind of, kind of really badly in terms of trying to appeal to young people. I'm not sure this program would be any different no, I think the article in the South China Morning Post was probably written by a reporter, well-known reporter called Phil Space. Mm-hmm. Well, it, well, we, it worked for us. We bit, uh, right? And 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 so you know you can try to decouple the political issues from the bread and butter issues, and you can try to win hearts and minds through you know purely economic means, but. With all the sorts of stories that we discussed already on the show, you know, you have stuff like what happened in Australia, and that that weighs on people's minds, and that Mm -hmm. colors the way that they're going to interpret these moves, even if there is some economic incentive there. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Beijing might just not even brand this kind of economic incentive very well. Um, You know, sometimes it kind of really, weirdly shoots itself in the foot by acting, you know, with with a, going in really hard when you know having a much more laid back approach would be more useful, mm. and you know also this kind of realization I feel like it's you know like four or five years kind of late. I mean you know this kind of realization 
on the part of China should have come much earlier, really. About a decade too late, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly over a decade too late. All right. We're going to leave it right there and move on to our very last segment for the first half of the show. Before we leave cross-strait relations behind completely, let's dig into the media portrayal of all this. Of course, the international media does play a role occasionally making news in cross-strait relations rather than simply covering it. We saw an example of that recently in the fallout from the Reuters interview with President Tsai uh, that we discussed last week on the podcast, Gavin. Yes, Reuters was forced to apologize this week over misunderstandings from a re- it's, it's interview we talked about last week with President mm-hmm. Tsai Ing-wen when she was asked about the possibility of another phone call with the United States President Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a, the foreign ministry released this thing on Monday morning that basically said the news agency issued the apology for oversimplifying comments made by Tsai during an interview, the, the interview at the presidential office, and it concerned the phone call. Basically, in the interview, which was headlined, Taiwan president says phone call with Trump can take place again. Reuters quoted Tsai Ing-wen as saying that she had not excluded the opportunity to call Trump himself, but it will depend on the situation. Now, a Reuters interview with Trump a day later ran under the headline, Trump spurns Tsai's suggestion of another phone call. And that was described by some government officials and netizens here in Taiwan as being a bit of a slap in the face for Tsai Ing-wen. The Trump's Trump's comments. Trump's comments. Slap in the face. Slap yeah. in the face. Yeah, but then apparently it all came out that maybe Reuters had oversimplified it, so they sort of issued a sort of an apology. Right. I presume they mumbled the apology. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think the way that I would put it is they really ran with that one comment that Ty made during the interview. The exact comment. Once again, we read it uh, on the show last week, but I'll read it again. We don't exclude the opportunity to call President Trump himself, but it depends on the needs on the, of the situation and the U.S. government's consideration of regional affairs. So a very Manila envelope, bland sort of comment that she made there. It was also apparently made. Uh, in response to a question from Reuters. So she didn't say it spontaneously. And apparently the question wasn't on the list of questions that they sent to exactly. the presidential office. Exactly. And so, you know, they ran with the, this angle. Fair enough. You're a media organization. You need to find some angle that's going to be interesting to your readers. I think, for me, where they ran into trouble was that second headline that they had, Trump spurns Taiwan president's suggestion of another phone call. Because, of course, she never suggested another phone call. That simply didn't happen. So that's a mischaracterization. Now, we have on the phone somebody who has uh, actually written for Reuters in the past. So he speaks with some authority on these matters. Uh, Ralph, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I was, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to give you the full conflict of interest disclosure. I, used, I worked for Reuters for a little bit more than four years here in Taipei. So... When I first saw the interview with Tsai Ing-wen, I was, um, you know, hats off to them because it takes a lot of work to get that set up. You need to usually fly somebody else in who is senior to whoever's working in the bureau locally. And then, um, you know, not only did they get uh, Tsai Ing-wen, but they got Donald Trump uh, close to his uh, first 100 days. Uh, They were able to discuss with both leaders the same topic um, because the leaders aren't talking to each other right now, so sometimes it takes a media organization to make these bridges and ask these questions. So I saw nothing wrong with the timing of it. In fact, I was, um, you know, felt like congratulating somebody. It takes a lot of work to get this set up, to get it done in that kind of sequence. Um, And you mentioned that some of the question about 
Ty making another call to Trump may not have been on the list of questions. Well, that's common practice. Also, the list of questions are understood by both the reporters and the officials being interviewed to just be guidelines. Uh, you do not need to stick to that as script when you go into the interview, and everybody knows that. So if that's a source of complaint, um, I'm afraid that's not going to be upheld. Um, possibly Reuters should have told Ty when they were going to talk to Trump. Um, they, they have that option. They don't have to. If they apologize, it's very nice of them. Um, and I, I didn't really see the two comments, um, the comment from Ty and the comment from Trump as being you know, in opposition necessarily or exclusive of each other because I believe Trump, well, Ty was saying she doesn't rule it out and we have to see what the conditions are at the time where we might want to make a call. And then um, Trump was saying that he's trying to be get closer to China right now so the timing doesn't work out. But they're not, nobody's saying never. Um, so it didn't seem to me that it was a, um, you know, that they were putting one, pitting one person against the other. It wasn't a cockfight. What about that word, though? The word that gets me is, in the second headline, the word suggestion. There was a suggestion of another phone call. That seems incorrect to me. I don't think Ty ever did suggest another phone call. Yeah, it's not the best language. They could have, the headlines could have been done better. Definitely, mm. um, you know, headlines are hard to write, as as you, as you may know, being in media because you have a, a limited amount of space. Quite the, you know, it's just the um, the arch enemy of fill space. Who you mentioned earlier, <laughs> um, you, know, you have limited space and all kinds of things you could say. So you have to choose these words that are you know within the the broad realm of accuracy, but still uh, they're not going to jump over your the, the space you have at the top of the screen either. Brian, what do you make of all this? Of course, when those commentators in Taiwan talk about the slap in the face, basically what they're getting at here is the context of seemingly warming ties between the Trump administration and uh, leadership in Beijing. Uh, Trump has had a lot of nice things to say about Xi Jinping recently. And so the fact that Trump said, you know, a, a phone call is probably out of the cards right now, could be seen as a signal that he cares more about that China relationship than the Taiwan relationship. Uh, but do you think, just uh, focusing in on the coverage itself, do you think that the coverage was fair? I mean, I think the the issue with this kind of thing, particularly in the you know present crisis of international media, in which you know we live in a post fact world, apparently, is that you know like what weasel words you put in, or you know how does how do you take a set of statements and you know, how to interpret it? And I think that you know in this case, Reuters got the blowback because. Um, there is a lot of concern about all these different developments, and so Reuters was was seen as you know skewing the narrative in a certain direction, which indicated you know a growing ties between China and Trump, and that you know Trump was abandoning Taiwan. Um, at the same time, I also do wonder if there's some wishful thinking that you know that the Trump administration still carries a pro Taiwan flame secretly deep in its heart. Um, at the same time, I think it's complicated. I think it's complicated, and you know uh, politicians obviously. You know, have something to lose from media statements which take their words out of context. So there's a lot of you know wiggle room, a lot of you know unclear statements that you see in these kind of interviews. For example, you know, the Tsai administration has a tendency to actually with many presidential administrations in Taiwan, they tend to do interviews in Chinese even if the president is totally fluent in English because you know the translation, the added layer of translation provides another layer of plausible deniability. Um, oh, that goes back to President Ma Ying Zhou when he did his famous interview in English. Mm, that's um, right, which was which was unusual. Allegedly made a faux pas, which led to complaints and another apology from another wire service, I believe.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think with the Trump administration too, you know, there's difficulties with that. You know, its statements are very hard to interpret many times, and sometimes it is willing just to you know make outright reversals within a day or less than a day. Mm. Just on that, I, I, well, I don't think that this whole issue is going to you know blow apart. Reuters will still be able to get its job done here. There were no factual inaccuracies in the story, which would have made them look much worse in, in, in to my mind. Um, it's just. Um, you know, as, as Brian mentioned, I think it's a sensitivity. The politicians are, you know, they have to, they, they, they depend on these interviews to get the word out about to the, the rest of the world, especially if it's in English. So uh, there, there's a lot riding on it. Then again, I don't think that um, it's going to resonate, you know, in, in the media community here or have any impact on uh, Taiwan-U.S. relations. Mm. All right. Well, there you have it. We're going to have to leave that and head on to the break. When we return, Taiwan's labor movement strutted its stuff this Monday to mark Labor Day. So we'll be checking in with our own leftist agitator, Brian Hugh, (laughs) to get the scoop on the demonstration and the future of Taiwan labor relations. Then, did Foxconn head Terry Guo just have a meeting with President Trump? We'll discuss why Taiwan's most prominent industry leader was just spotted walking out of the White House. Twice. Twice. In one week. But he says he doesn't remember if he spoke to uh, Donald Trump, so we'll see if his memory improves. Wow, what are they putting in the water in the White House? (laughs) I don't know. We don't have a man on the scene, so we don't know. And then last up, we'll get the perspective of one woman's rights group on a tragic suicide that has a lot of Taiwan questioning the country's approach to cases of sexual abuse. All that more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Brian Hugh, and Ralph Jennings. On Monday, several thousand union members and labor activists descended on Taipei's Ketagalan Boulevard to mark Labor Day and signal extreme displeasure with the Thai administration's approach to labor issues so far. Similar demonstrations also took place elsewhere in Taiwan. Notably, Kaohsiung had several hundred people make it out onto the streets. So, as they, you know, descended on Katagalan Boulevard, the list of demands that they had, they had five big demands, they were mostly focusing on kind of cutting out loopholes, making sure that all the labor regulations that exist in Taiwan apply evenly to all industries. You know, just because you work as a bus driver or as a doctor, that doesn't mean that the labor protections don't apply to you. That was a lot of what they were talking about that day. Interestingly, they were also talking a lot about pension reform. Uh, Folks there were saying that they oppose President Tsai Ing-wen's plan for pension reform, uh, and they want to protect the civil servants that would be uh, affected by that pension reforms and pension cuts. But the thing that really struck me the most was how much this demonstration focused on Tsai Ing-wen herself in a really negative way. Because I think when we saw the campaign that Tsai Ing-wen made running up to the election in 2016, it was a very pro-labor campaign. She, you know, generally the DPP is, I think, seen as having somewhat closer ties to labor than the KMT. And here, one year on, 
they had absolutely nothing nice to say about President Tsai. They even had this little tableau in which uh, there was a little skit on uh, on a stage wherein some folks put on masks that represented various industry leaders from around Taiwan. Uh, they also had a mask that represented Tsai Ing-wen herself. And then these industry leaders went up and they shoveled tofu in into their faces, kind of, I guess, representing uh, Tsai Ing-wen and these business leaders, uh, eating up all the economic interests of Taiwan's working class. And, and, and the slogan was, Tsai Ing-wen, we out show woman to tofu. Don't eat our tofu. Brian, what were you, you, you were also there at the demonstration this week. Uh, what struck you about it? I also love the uh, slogan, you know, we are workers, not tofu. That's a great chant, I think. Um, but anyway, I think this is, I mean, this is the group that has been protesting Tsai Ing-wen before she even got elected, because, you know, there was the expectation that the DPP would win, um, because, you know, the KMT was imploding at the time of, you know, shortly before 2016 presidential elections. And so the, these labor groups, which are, you know, the group that is known oftentimes, I mean, one of the main, one of the main groups that was present at May Day was the group that's called 2016 Workers Struggle Against the President. And they were demonstrating a tie before she even got elected. Um, they anticipated that, you know, the issue of, uh, one rest, flexible rest day, one set day off, that would become an issue. Um, and they also anticipated that public cuts, public holidays would become an issue. Um, so these were also a lot of the same individuals that were behind the hunger strike against, you know, the cuts to public holidays. Um, and these were also individuals who have been involved in basically all of the major labor actions in the past year, including the China Airlines strike, which, you know, gathered a great deal of public attention. Um, so I'm not surprised that, you know, they will continue to criticize Tsai Ing-wen. Um, I mean, there has been accusations against them that they're covertly pro-unification because of the fact that they were protesting Tsai even before she got elected. But I think that the strategy they take of a lot of labor groups is, is quite maximalist. You know, whoever's in charge, they will criticize and demand more because, you know, of the general view that this is the social structure of Taiwan, that workers are being exploited. And also the pension reform stuff, I think that's, that's actually fairly new because that's, that's, that hasn't been one of their demands in the past year. So I think they're kind of jumping on to a hot-button issue. What, what I did find striking is it, it, it does seem like a lot of the people there have the sense that all of these efforts at labor reform, you know, we're talking about the seven-day work week, th- they feel that they've just witnessed Tsai Ing-wen slowly water it down uh, for the sake of business interests. You know, mm. she started out with a relatively strong platform, relatively mm. strong proposal, and as the business interests have gotten to her, she's slowly watered it down, and the trust seems to really be eroded there. Mm. Uh, do, do you have that sense as well? Yeah, I think there wasn't a great deal of trust, but also it stings really particularly because Tai, you know, indicated that she was somewhat supportive of them during their first hunger strike, and then after meeting with biz- business leaders, you know, then she turned around and said that, okay, well, you know, we have to go with the public cuts, the public holidays, and you know, the one flexible rest day and one set day off. Um, I mean, that the, the demonstration ended outside of the uh, building, which houses a lot of these, you know, big business uh, conglomerates. You know, these these uh, industrial organizations, and so there's still a lot of anger over that. That move is seen as you know indicating that the parties of the Thai administration are still very pro big business, and that there's a lot of you know state corporate ties behind the scenes, which you know does not work out well for the working class in Taiwan. And really quickly, before we toss things over to Ralph, I mean, just observing the demonstration and the form of the demonstration that took place on Wednesday, what does that tell you about the future of labor 
as a movement in Taiwan. Is this really going to be a, a muscular base that can oppose the administration? I think it's a really good question because, you know, the one set day off and one flexible rest day issue was an example of where the Thai administration really miscalculated in terms of that they didn't really seem to realize that this issue would actually affect their approval rating to such an extent. And I think that was the key issue that really has affected their uh, approval rating much more than some other issues. But I'm not actually sure the role of labor was really present there in causing that, you know, change of perception. So I think I think it is actually a question of whether labor can actually, you know, aim their appeals to society writ large, uh, particularly maybe white-collar society. And, you know, so I think there's I think there's a there's still difficulties in messaging there, which I'm not sure they can actually get around. On the other hand, I do notice that in the past few years, there have been a significant increase in the amount of young people that are part of labor unions. I mean, among civil society groups, labor groups are very good at training new talent. And so I wonder I wonder if there's, you know, by connecting with the younger generation, whether that will benefit labor groups. Mm. Uh, Ralph, anything that you want to add there? Uh, not too much. I didn't get to attend that, that event that you're talking about. Although I would only say I would agree that Tsai Ing-wen is going to face pressure from from employers, from the business community, not only in terms of time off and uh, working hour flexibility, but probably eventually uh, salaries and wages, because that's something that uh, I believe the president said that she would address during her term. Um, and so, if this issue has caused her caused a hit to her popularity and any other problems, it's only going to get worse and more difficult as other labor issues come up. So I hope that she has some kind of, some way of, of uh, some new approach to dealing with it. All right. And uh, we're just going to have to observe where that all goes. Uh, she has a chance to address a lot of this on May 20th when she gives a big old speech to mark her one-year anniversary for inauguration. But moving on. In the 80s, the label Made in Taiwan became something of a cliché as Taiwan became the manufacturer for the world. Well, an awful lot has changed in the last few decades. Looks like things may have come full circle as we're getting reports this week that Foxconn, also known as Hanhai, also known as the world's largest contract electronics manufacturer and one of Taiwan's largest companies, may be preparing to set up some of its manufacturing in the U.S., Gavin. Yes, these reports came after Honhai or Foxconn chairman Terry Gore was spotted leaving the White House twice mm. last week on Thursday and Friday. Mm-hmm. And now apparently uh, Terry Gore met briefly with Donald Trump on Friday morning where he apparently thanked him for growth and job creation policies. That's according to White House spokeswoman Natalie Storm. Now, on Thursday, Terry Gore met with Donald Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kirshner, also a couple of Trump's aides and members of the White House's Office of American Innovation. This has got to do with reports that Hon Hai or Foxconn, whichever one you want to use, plans to sort of invest quite a bit of money in America. As part of Donald Trump's Make It in America policy. Right, and we're talking really about uh, direct investment in the form of uh, a plant that would create, I think it was LCD screens? Yeah, it was LCD screens, yes. Yeah. So that's kind Apparently, of... Apparently, $7 billion US dollars is what Foxconn reportedly plans to invest in this US display-making facility. Yep. So that's a that's a chunk of change, and it fits in very closely with the Trump administration's stated goal of bringing more manufacturing back to the U.S. and uh, that you know that all of course goes under the banner of America First, and 
there has been some concern here in Taiwan. You know, of course, Taiwan and the U.S. are big trading partners that Taiwan may be labeled as one of the problems uh, when Trump is talking about this America first stuff. You know, if if the U.S. is importing a lot of goods from Taiwan, could the administration see this as, you know, uh, siphoning off uh, America's resources and America's jobs? So if uh, if this deal goes forwards, uh, maybe in some ways this this could address some of those concerns, bringing manufacturing from Taiwan back to the U.S., or I guess probably more realistically from China or some other center back to the U.S. Uh, but, uh, Brian, what, what, what do you make of this whole story? Hey, it's really hard to judge because, you know, it's actually true that for Foxconn or Honghai, it's becoming more and more difficult to operate in China. Um, as a result, you know, they've proposed things such as robotizing 60,000 jobs or actually moving their production to India. And, you know, sometimes Terry Gore throws out these crazy numbers of, you know, moving a million jobs to India and building 12 factories there, which is the same size of their operations in China. Um, in the case of the U.S., I mean, you know, there's a lot of speculation about whether Terry Guo is planning on running for president in Taiwan in the future. So I wonder that if, you know, he builds good ties with Donald Trump, is that a way to allay his very pro-China reputation for in preparation for a future presidential run? So Does maybe it, more of a political motivation rather than a business motivation? It's, it's possible, but it's also very hard to say. At the mm-hmm. same time, you know, Terry Guo could just merely be seeking to profit from the increasing, you know, lean towards China, let's say, of the Trump administration, or... Terry Goh could just see, be seeking to act as kind of an intermediary for China and America in a way that benefits his business dealings in China. So I think mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's very hard to judge because you know as a businessman Terry Goh his interests could just go in any direction. Mm-hmm. So it, it's very hard to say what his his plans are. All right, so kind of a, a high stakes drama unfolding right there. Ralph, what do you make of all this? I think um, I don't know what Terry Goh's political ambitions are at all, but. I do know that he has been trying to diversify factory work outside of China because of labor problems there, because of rising costs. Um, he's got, uh, well, Foxconn has plants in Vietnam and Indonesia. I, I think it's an R&D center in Indonesia. Uh, regarding the United States, um, this is not the first plan or the first move that Foxconn has made over there. Uh, under the Obama administration, there, I, I believe the government was offering incentives to American companies such as Apple that were able to do their work onshore instead of going offshore um, as they had done via Foxconn in China. Um, so in order to keep getting some of that business from the American high-tech developers, Foxconn needs to be there onshore so they can be counted as, as, as one of the, the local players. Um, and with Trump being America first and all that stuff, that it's, it's even more urgent for Foxconn to have something, some more presence there. And I think their, their MO, you know, whether it's China, Indonesia, U.S., is to negotiate with governments, with the federal, central, state, provincial, whatever's out there, to try to, to make these deals and to get some kind of a package that works for them so that it doesn't cost as much as just showing up and, and taking out permits and buying land like you know, with like somebody without those connections. All right. Leave that one there. Last up for the broadcast. The tragic suicide of a young writer has sparked a public dialogue on sexual abuse and support for victims. This one gets complicated fast, so if you haven't been following it, uh, bear with us. A lot to get to here. This really became a talked-about issue when the parents of this writer, Lin E. Han, went public with their claims that her recent best-selling novel about a young woman raped by her cram school teacher 
was in fact autobiographical, so basically depicting lived experiences of Lini Han herself. They also made the claim that her suicide was linked to the trauma from that experience. Uh, so, uh, Gavin, uh, lots of twists and turns uh, this story has seen over the last week or so. I guess let's just start uh, at the beginning, you know, when these parents came forward with these allegations. Authorities right off the bat were saying, you know, this might violate laws that say that you can't reveal the name of a victim in sexual assault cases. Yes, that's an issue that came out. The parents, as you said, came out two days after, I believe the day after their daughter was found having committed suicide in the apartment with her husband Mm -hmm. in Taipei, I believe the apartment was. She was from Tainan. She committed suicide in Taipei. And the parents came out and attributed the daughter's death to depression, saying it was related to her being raped by a teacher nine years ago. Now, before the media picked up on this, a DPP lawmaker and a Kaohsiung city councillor picked up on this, and they both held separate press conferences at either end of the island, in which they basically came out and named the suspect in the case. Mm -hmm. They named the victim in the case, and Mm -hmm. they also said they have evidence that will ruin the cram school teacher's life this man was a the, the alleged rapist was a cram school teacher mm-hmm. which where it gets murky now the Taipei city government was dragged into this because of course media outlets were either naming the victim and the suspect naming the victim and not the suspect or naming the suspect and not the victim which led to questions over whether the victim or the suspect in the case could be named. Now, the city government's Department of Information came out and said the victim's name could be used because the issue behind her death was related to social justice. Now, the suspect's name, his pseudonym came out, first of all, Mm -hmm. Chen Xing. Apparently he was teaching under Uh, a pseudonym. Because this goes back to the other issue that came out here, Cram, he was a cram school teacher, and apparently in Taiwan, while if obviously you get a job at a state school or a, a proper school, should we call them for the sake of argument, there's background checks, and you have to use your real name. But in cram schools or bushy buns here in Taiwan, they employ teachers who work at real schools, and they give them like after-work jobs, and the teachers don't always want to use their real names. This means that anybody that gets a job in a cram school doesn't necessarily have to use their real name. So this led to questions about whether it was okay for cram schools where, shall we say, more mature people are surrounded by younger people on a daily basis should be using their real names so the parents of the students can actually find out and verify the backgrounds of the teachers who are teaching their children. Mm-hmm. Right. So a number of uh, legislators now calling for a system that would have more verifications, more checks than the one that we have currently. After it all hit the media fan, after it all went to the city government in Taipei, the Tainan district prosecutors came out on Thursday of this week mm-hmm. and said it has officially launched an investigation into the alleged rape and suicide mm-hmm. of Linny Han, who was 26 years old. Mm-hmm. Now... The police department in Tainan also came out and said, yes, we're also going to start an investigation, but we have difficulties with our investigation because Lin's parents never... Well, Lin's parents and the rape, which allegedly took place about nine years ago, 
Neither Lynn's parents nor her herself, when she was a child, actually filed any official police report of there being a rape, mm-hmm. which apparently the Tainan City Police Department Commissioner Huang Zong Ren said this has added to difficulties in actually investigating the case. Right. So uh, as, as Gavin is getting at right there, uh, a lot of angles to this case. I should point out that pretty much everything that we know about the uh, incident itself comes from this novel uh, that was written by Lean. And uh, in that novel, I mean, it's portraying a 16-year-old girl that uh, has some kind of relationship, some kind of coercive relationship with uh, her Bushiban teacher. So that's the sort of issue that uh, folks out there are responding to and are concerned about. But again, I mean, everything that we know about it does come uh, from the novel itself. So to get a little bit of a clearer picture on where this public outrage is coming from and what could be done to address some of the issues that we're talking about here, uh, I spoke with Lin Mei Shun. She is the chief executive of the Modern Women's Foundation an advocacy group working to protect women's rights uh, based here in Taipei. And starting off with that issue of publicly naming victims, uh, as we said, it does look like authorities are going to give the media a pass on this one. But Lean started out by telling me why she feels like those rules against naming victims publicly are necessary in Taiwan in the first place. It is especially in Taiwan because sexual assault is like a taboo in this society. Before, as uh, before, we implement implementing um, this privacy act. We uh, the, the the information of the victims are totally opened, even in a court. But then, um, when media. Um, um, it, report this kind of news has no limit and then cause a lot of um, trauma to the victims. And after that, uh, we write this kind of privacy to protect information of victim in this act. This is also related to our culture. When a victim um, stands into the court or like people know who is the victim and there's more blaming to the victim than to the abuser or to the rapist. That's why we have to, at this stage, protect the victim first. Mm. Maybe you could talk a little bit about why this case in particular has garnered so much attention and so much public anger so quickly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think a victim's death really is heartbreaking, heartbreaking, especially she is so talented and she is so lovely um, and and she had a book um, wrote about her story, you know, um, almost based on her true experiences and and she also struggled for many years, many years, try to recover or try to fight with the whole system and culture. So, I mean, for me, I can feel her helplessness is so strong that make people feel so sad. And before her death, no one could 
could help her. No one could help her. That that is really a pity. You can see her infinite helplessness, and what kind of culture make stopped a, a victim to report this kind of things, and what what kind of pressure, you know, to to stop her asking for help. So this is something we feel so bad. It's like the whole society have the responsibility to share to share her tears, to share her sadness. Um, we have responsibility. We shouldn't fail this kind of uh, case. Our society should be more supportive. She's been struggling more than 10 years, and, and, and we could not save this. And think about that many other girls may suffer from the same situations. And what else can we do for others? And as a parent, I, I'm a parent too. And what else can we do to stop this kind of thing happen again, no matter in the campus or in a cram school? We should implement something else to, 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 to control the situation. Mm, yeah. I want to move now specifically to the issue of cram schools. Uh, and I want to make a special note that the reason that we're going to this issue is because it is now part of the public conversation. Uh, you know, we have to point out that we we don't know the facts of this specific case. There has been no trial. There has been no investigation that has revealed those facts to us. But because it is now part of the public conversation and because lawmakers themselves are raising the issue and calling for heightened scrutiny of these schools, uh, I, I do want to get your perspective on this issue and how cram schools perhaps do, as an environment, perhaps do introduce the possibility of some of the abuses that we're looking at here so first, I want you to take on that. And then also, uh, what do you make of the proposals that uh, these lawmakers are coming up with? Is some sort of verification system or, or, or requirements for naming of teachers, getting the real name of these teachers, is that really what's needed here? According to the statistics by the Ministry of Hygiene and Welfare, um, the, the more than 60% of reported cases are under age 18. So... Um, under age 18 is our main group of the victims. And also we look at the, by the perpetrator-victim relationship category. We notice teacher-student relationship um, is, uh, th- th- there were 83 cases last year. Okay. Uh, but we believe there are more, than, more cases than this 83 represent. Since the, the, it is a fuzzy in, and it happened in a, a closed environment, and so people may not uh, report. So from, from this case, we have to think about how do we prevent from those cases. Uh, even 83 is just the tip of the iceberg. And then what else we can do for the rest of the, the students? And I know there are some other some ways people are discussing. Um, one way is once the teacher will identify as rapist, we should fire the teacher. Okay, this is the 
law we are doing now. This is a policy we already implemented. But for the crime school, there is no law for them. So uh, how to cover crime school as part of a prevention network is the focus we should think about. So maybe using real name, it seems easier to track um, who is the guy, who is, uh, who, what is the profile of the person. But um, is this really um, prevent, can, is this, um, can we prevent all cases by using this? Um, I don't think so. So there's still other ways we should think about we should also think about how to uh, strengthen the owners of the crime school, the owners' responsibility of the crime school to, to really have a screen of their teacher and prevent any, any incident happen in their, uh, in their schools. Mm. And uh, just for closing thoughts, I mean, a, a lot of this is focusing on, you know, we want to encourage victims to feel empowered. We want to encourage victims to feel like they can come forward and report these cases and seek justice. Could you give us maybe just to take on this issue even more directly, to lay out for us what is standing in the way, in your view, of victims doing that? Why might they be reluctant to come forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. We mentioned about the cultural issue, or, and but I would like to expand more. Um, since rape is a is is a taboo, it's hard to speak up, hard to tell about their stories. So um, once it happens, it's like a stigma for the victims. It's like her fault, mostly girls, and um, and this. This situation, this phenomenon is rooted from our masculinity and patriarchal culture. When a, when a woman, a girl, uh, suffer from sexual assault, people blame the victims more than blame the abuser, more than blame the rapist. Uh, she would receive blaming like, uh, why are you so stupid going to her, his house? Why are you not aware of this is a prob- problematic person? Why are you wearing like that? Are you having a very, um, uh, like, a swabian, the act to seduce the teacher too? You know, people question the, the victim more than question the, the rapist. So this is the, the culture um, really stopped many um, victims to speak up. And the other reason is um, about the justice. You know, in Taiwan, sexual assault cases are compulsory to report. There were 10,610 cases reported last year, but only 3,656 were put forward as criminal cases by the police. And look at our prosecution rate is less than 50%. It's only about 47%. That means only less than um, 
1,800 cases were prosecuted. And think about, among these cases, only 88% of the case can reach the final verdict. It means only 1,500 cases were found guilty. And this is like a sift effect. The, the, there's a lot of suspicious, um, like rapists, suspicious cases, but at the end, really found guilty, it is so, so minimum. So people tend to have little faith on our judiciary judgment. So if our um, judicial system can be more friendly, more supportive to the victims, I think that would also encourage victims to come out and seek for justice. So this is another part of the reason people had to come out. So I hope, I hope the government, this is not a single case. Think about this case showing there's so many other victims hiding in the dark side. They, they are able to speak up. And there's some other similar cases of some other victims like this age. They are suffering similar um, situation. I, I really hope our government can have a strong attitude, no matter to come back this the, the the issue, come back the problem, or to have the willing to change some law to make the uh, the system more sufficient, more reliable. But they have to talk to the public, otherwise the rage and the anxiety. Just, you know, going on and on. And once again, we were speaking there to Lin Mei Shun of the Modern Women's Foundation. Quick note, the foundation recently opened up a sexual abuse trauma recovery center. They offer services in both Chinese and English. Folks who want to learn more, you can visit the Modern Women's Foundation website or call their number 027728-7008. The number once again is 027728-7008. We are going to round out that topic right there and move into our podcast bonus portion, meaning that we are moving away from the day's serious topics and into the lighter end of Taiwan news. Today, Gavin, uh, the story that you got for us, I believe, involves the rules of the road. Yeah, a new driving test, basically a driving license test, was introduced on May the 1st here in Taiwan, meaning that anybody that wants a driver's license will now be required to pass a road test in addition to a written test and an off-road test. There we go. So it's a road test. Now you have a road test. Before you, you just did it in a parking lot, you more probably, or less. You drove, around a, you drove around circles in a parking lot. You drove up a little hill. You went down a hill. You stopped at the red lights. You needed a little written test saying what this road sign means. You know, a, a, a basic driving test. Anyway, under the new rules, applicants who fail to buckle their seatbelts, turn on the vehicle's indicators before changing lanes or making a turn, or open their car doors properly on entry and exit of the vehicles, will lose points. Mm. All fair game, all fair game. I guess if you don't do your seatbelt up, you lose points anyway, <laughs> when you read really? That's pretty <laughs> And of course, if you so. open your door and knock a motorcyclist off, you're going to lose points. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so there you go. It's a new it's a test. test. It's a, apparently, it's, well, it's, it's a commonsensical test, if you see what I mean, basically. <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, especially in Taiwan. If, but if, I love if this. you haven't, if you gotta, you got to drive on the actual roads. But I do love this bit. The new rules also emphasise safe driving habits, requiring applicants to check their surroundings, tyres and undersides of their vehicles before going on the road. Mm-hmm. I wonder many people are going to go, well, I better check under my car before I go for a drive today. Yeah, are, are, are the testers just randomly placing bombs under some people's cars? And tyres. It's when you kick, because you, you kick the tyres, didn't you? That's mm-hmm. how you test the tyres. You walk up and you give them a good... Ah, oh, the tyres are all right. Good, I can go for a drive now. See, Gavin's giving all of our future test takers a little bit of advice right there. Make it easier for you all to uh, pass this test. Uh, Ralph, are, are you somebody who drives in Taiwan? Are you happy to see these changes? I don't drive in Taiwan, and I don't really have much faith in the drivers here. I don't think, no matter what the tests require, whether you can pass it or not, once you get out on the road, if you feel like using the sidewalk or the bus stop or somebody's <laughs> store, just go for it. Just say anything. Yeah, I wonder, I don't think, don't ride your scooter on the sidewalk. Are they testing for that? Because that's clearly something that nobody cares about. Uh, Brian, uh, you also don't drive, I'm pretty sure. I also don't drive in Taiwan. I think that, you know, I can just stick to trains, so... <laughs> it's usually public transport is pretty convenient here. Um, I, I, there's something with driving culture, though, you know, just, you see videos on the Apple Daily pretty often of just, you know, all these different incidents. Um, well, if we didn't know, have the dash cam footage, right. then how would we fill have our viral those? videos? Yeah, exactly. There's actually a, there's actually a website now here in Taiwan. I forget what it's called off the top of my head. It's like a social, a, a public, general public media sort of website <laughs> where, where the general public films their things they see and stick them on the website. Mm. There's a whole heap of these driving things on this website. I'm sure people doing absolutely inane things. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm absolutely certain. So. Ralph, I mean, not not even a touch more confidence if uh, the drivers have been put through slightly more rigorous testing. I, I really don't think that the the errors and oversights in driving that we can see are because of poor testing. It's I think people are, you know, they know how to operate the steering wheel. They know how to operate the gas pedal and the brakes and the equipment, which is what you're being tested for. A lot of them probably know what the basic laws are, the colors of lights. And I'm not sure if they know what a, you know, what a striped crosswalk is for, <laughs> but there are, there are things like I, I think the basic knowledge is there. And ironically, it's the professional drivers who are the worst violators of laws and and just basic, you know, morals when they're faced with smaller, smaller people in the streets. And you know, these are the ones who drive for a living. They drive the, the little blue trucks and the taxis and that and the buses. And they're the ones who are they're they're really the the ones you got to watch out for. So it's not a matter of skill that you could test and say, ah, these people have passed a tougher test, therefore, all's well. You know, this is adding, making the laws tougher or the rules tougher or the guidelines tougher is just not going to make it. If you want to improve driving, you got to um, got to enforce what's out there. You've got to give everyone an M1 Abrams tank. <laughs> people will get a lot more polite. Yeah. I, th- I think I think that people will just you know try to force their way through any crosswalk though. So. Oh yeah, they don't have <laughs> tanks on the crosswalks. That would be an issue. All right, and we are going to leave it right there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Around about 8:15 p.m. runs all the way up until the end of the hour. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. You know where to find podcasts. Just look where you find podcasts. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Manconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Good night and sayonara. 
Sayonara Indeed, joined as sometimes by Brian Hugh. Thank you, Brian. Good night. And also joined by Ralph Jennings. Thank you, Ralph. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.